70 years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of global Korea. Throughout the year, we celebrate the 70th anniversary of KBS World Radio with the voices of our listeners from all over the world. Hello, this is Jonathan from Kentucky in the United States. I started listening to Korean music a couple years ago, and that led me to the podcast version of One Fine Day. And I really enjoyed uh, Lena's segments with the other guest hosts about uh, dramas and several decades of Korean music. And I learned a lot, and it was very entertaining. And I discovered that I could download the KBS World Radio app and listen to the rebroadcast and also hear the music. Uh, so it's pretty much a daily listen for me at this point. Uh, I also like to check in on K-Pop Connection because um, they play great music as well and also keep me informed on entertainment news. And I just want to wish everybody at KBS and especially the people that make it possible a, a happy 70th birthday. And I look forward to the next milestone, uh, which will probably be 75. Uh, so I, I'm still going to be a listener then, I'm sure. Thanks. 70 years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of global Korea. KBS World Radio brings Korea to you wherever you are. Hello, it's Monday the 27th of November and welcome to Korea 24. I'm your host, Kwon jang North Korea has begun restoring frontline guard posts inside the DMZ that were destroyed under the 2018 Inter-Korean Military Agreement. This follows the effective suspension of the deal after the North's recent spy satellite launch. We'll have more details in news briefing shortly. And then for our in-depth, we'll examine the claimed capabilities of the satellite with a satellite expert. And coming up for Monday's Sports Roundup, we'll find out who was crowned MVP of the KBO regular season and we'll go over the latest drama for promotion in the K-League 2. We have all that and more on today's Korea 24. Just days after North Korea declared that it would scrap the 2018 inter-Korean military agreement aimed at defusing cross-border tensions, the regime has been spotted restoring frontline guard posts inside the demilitarized zone. The guard posts had been destroyed under the 2018 agreement. South Korean military authorities released four surveillance photos taken with cameras and thermal optical devices on Monday, confirming Pyongyang's efforts to respond to restore its Eastern Front GPs that started last Friday. For this and our other headlines of the day, we have joining us in the studio Deputy Editor-in-Chief of KBS World's English News Service, Kim In-kyung. In-kyung, hello. Hello, Channel. So it seems tension is escalating on the border with North Korea. It all started with North Korea's spy satellite launch last Tuesday night, which was followed by Seoul's partial suspension of the 2018 military agreement. North Korea responded in turn by announcing that it would scrap the accord as well. And now it has begun rebuilding the frontline guard posts inside the DMZ. Can you brief us on this latest development? Military authorities released four surveillance photos on Monday confirming that Pyongyang has begun restoring its Eastern Front GPs. 
Under the September 2018 military agreement between the two Koreas, each side blew up 10 GPs in the DMZ and left an 11th vacant in a bid to defuse cross-border tensions and to prevent accidental clashes. That cut down the number of GPs within the DMZ to about 150 for the north and to about 50 for the south. The photos showed North Korean soldiers setting up posts, transporting heavy firearms and operating nighttime guard duty. Authorities in Seoul also noted that Pyongyang ex- expanded coastal artillery. How did Seoul respond to the restoration? The new Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman said the government will take corresponding measures. Speaking to reporters on Monday, Chairman Kim Myung-soo said it would be foolish not to take such measures, but it didn't give a direct answer when asked about when South Korea will restore its GPs, only saying that corresponding steps will be pursued. On the type of steps Seoul could pursue, Kim said it depends on the enemy's actions, adding that the world will soon come to know what the measures are. Meanwhile, the South Korean military also said North Korea's recently fired military reconnaissance satellite does, appear, does indeed appear to be in orbit. Can you tell us more? Defense Ministry spokesperson Chun ha said during a Monday briefing that the military is conducting a comprehensive analysis of the satellites, including its flight path, adding that the orbiter poses a serious threat to national security as it can be used as a means of dropping nuclear weapons by intercontinental ballistic missile. But Chun said that Seoul's analysis of debris from Pyongyang's first failed attempt in May showed the satellite to be primitive, and the potential advancement in related technologies is limited, given the time frame between launches. Regarding the notes claim that the Maligyong-1 satellite has already taken photos of the entire Korean peninsula, Hawaii and Guam, another military official said uh, cast doubt, saying it usually takes several months after a satellite launch for such photos to be taken. The UN Security Council will convene a formal session to discuss the North satellite launch at 10 a.m. Monday Eastern Time or mon- midnight Korea time. Uh, what do we expect from this meeting? The council is unlikely to issue a statement denouncing the North or adopt a resolution amid opposition from permanent members Russia and China. Earlier, this is despite UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres strongly condemning the satellite launch as a violation of UNSC resolutions. Okay, we'll take a closer look at what we know so far about the satellite for our in-depth today. That's coming up later. Uh, Let's now turn to Busan's 2030 Expo bid. There's only one day left until member countries vote on the venue. What's South Korea's last-minute campaign strategy? As you know, President Yoon Song-yeol was in Paris last week to gain support. Now Prime Minister Han Dok-soo is in the French capital to lead a last-minute campaign to bring the 2030 World Expo to Busan. Han is targeting member countries that have not yet openly endorsed the candidate or are still wavering. Trade Industry and Energy Minister Pang Myung-gyu and Second Vice Foreign Minister Oh Young-ju are also there to make a last-minute pitch to BIM. BIE members that are being held by the heads of the nation's top business groups, including Samsung, SK, Hyundai Motor, LG, Lotte and POSCO, who have been staying in Paris since last Thursday to secure the bid. Former UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon also arrived in Paris on Sunday to support South Korea's bid. They're not saying, but is believed to be a speaker at Korea's last presentation for BIE members on Tuesday. Busan is vying against Riyadh, Saudi Arabia and Rome, Italy for the bid. What are Busan's chances of hosting the event? The Saudi capital is believed to be the front-runner so far, but South Korea is confident that it is unlikely to receive more than two-thirds of all votes in the first round, and a runoff between Riyadh and Busan will see the South Korean port city absorb Rome's support to win. 
While Busan was a late addition to the bid to host the World Expo, there was a strong push to bring the international event to South Korea's second largest city, with meetings held with leaders and representatives of over 100 countries of the past year and a half. Yes, the vote is taking place Tuesday local time, as we said, which means we will probably have the results Wednesday Korea time. So uh, we'll cover the results on our Wednesday show. In other news, the top diplomats of South Korea, China and Japan met on Sunday for the first time in four years. Uh, Was there progress on their efforts to hold a triathlon summit? Not quite. They agreed to accelerate efforts to hold a trilateral summit at the earliest time, but the wording wasn't much different from a senior officials meeting in late September when the three countries agreed to hold a tripartite summit at the earliest convenient time. After the 100-minute talks, Foreign Minister Park Jin told reporters that the three sides reaffirmed their commitment to convene a summit at the earliest convenient time for all parties and promised to expedite preparations for the summit. That's where we're going to leave it for our news briefing there. Thank you for those updates. Thank you. Third time was the charm, it seems, for North Korea. Last Tuesday, North Korea successfully launched a military spy satellite into space after two failed attempts in May and August. The success appears to have been achieved with the assistance of Russia, a result of the leaders of the two nations meeting in September. North Korea has already claimed that the Malikyang-1 reconnaissance satellite has taken multiple pictures of South Korea, as well as US bases in Guam, Pearl Harbor and Hawaii. But some experts have expressed doubts over the satellite's capabilities. For a further assessment on the launch, we have joining us on the line now David Stupples, a professor at City University London who specialises in research and development of space-based reconnaissance, surveillance and navigation systems. Professor Stupples, hello and thank you for your time today. It's a pleasure to be with you. First off, do you believe the satellite launch was successful? Do you think the payload was successfully launched into orbit? Uh, yes, I do. And I, I've actually seen the uh, and tracked it myself. Uh, and been, I was looking at it yesterday and it is uh, the satellite is, is certainly in orbit. OK. And what can you tell us uh, about the launch from what you've seen? Uh, first off, the, the launch vehicle that was used. Uh, obviously, the uh, rocket uh, failed twice before, but this third time it was successful. What did you make of the launch vehicle itself first? Well, the, the Colima 1 um, launch vehicle itself is a three-stage uh, development. Uh, and the, the first two stages are developed from an intercontinental ballistic missile. And that is known as the uh, Hawasson 17. Uh, so th- that's been flying uh, for uh, about two years now, and it's been most successful. Now, the third stage was fitted to this rocket so that it could launch the satellite into a low Earth orbit. Um, and uh, as you know from your um, press, uh, that failed twice before, once on the first stage and second, uh, and the second time on the second stage. And fortunately, South Korea was a, uh, managed to recover some of that, including the satellite itself or um, an earlier version of the satellite. So, uh, yep, that was the rocket. And uh, 
the third time lucky for North Korea anyway, and it launched it into um, the low Earth orbit. Okay, and what do we know about the satellite itself, uh, the satellite that was launched? Well, first of all, the, the um, I know a fair bit more about the satellite, but just to finish on the uh, the three-stage rocket, mm. um, that had a maximum payload of 300, kilo, uh, um, um, 300 kilograms. So uh, that gives us some idea to how big the satellite was, although, uh, as I say, your security services have, have, have got hold of a, um, an earlier prototype of that. But that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is uh, to know, since it is 300 kilometers, uh, sorry, um, 300 kilometers, uh, uh, kilograms in weight. Um, we know that it went into uh, an orbit around about um, 517 kilometers above the Earth. In fact, it's slightly elliptic. Mm. Um, and it, the other thing about it, it, it is almost a uh, polar orbit, which means it's going around the poles. It's not quite. It's, it's just a few degrees off that. Um, and at that height, it gives a gives a um, a ninety four point seven minute period that goes around the earth once in that time, which means it goes around per day fifteen point two times four point five times of that it's in view of the whole of Korea Korea mm. so it can actually uh, monitor Korea from almost the south right to the north. So it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very good orbit for that particular um, task. <clears throat> now, I also looked at the possible size of this, um, being a weight of 300 kilograms and looking at the, the rocket that launched it. Mm. I suspect the size of the satellite is about 1.55 meters by 1.4 meters, 1.49 meters by 1.4 meters. And that the um, the 1.5 meters is in fact from the uh, the solar panels from side right. to side. That is that's an important measurement because what it does is give the measurement of the the telescope on board the optic uh, about four meters. Right. Okay. So can you tell us more about what that means? Uh, how capable is that then? Uh, and is that enough for it to be qualified as a military reconnaissance satellite? Oh, it's certainly a military. Yes, it's, it certainly qualifies as a military reconnaissance satellite. But, but, but only the, the optic itself is probably, as I say, only about um, 1, 1, 1 metre to 1.5 metres in length, which means that the focal length of that would not give terribly... Uh, precise or um, uh, good images uh, of the Earth. I think it would probably see a very large object, uh, but not small objects. I see. Okay, so how do these capabilities compare to then um, other military spy satellites out there? Well, if that's an interesting point. If I mean, one of the best optic satellites up there at the moment is is the uh, is the Chinese satellite, uh, and that's got an optic length of, of about ten meters. So you can see that the 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 focal length of that is 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 uh, very good for you know looking at objects on on Earth. Which, you know, to see them very small objects. Uh, the Russians have also uh, got very good optics as well. 
Um, so it doesn't compare well. Um, but as a first attempt, I suppose it, it, it's um, a good start. I see. OK. Uh, North Korean state media reported Saturday that the country's leader, Kim Jong-un, examined images already of major U.S. military installations in South Korea and other critical sites in the South taken by the satellite. Uh, the report said the satellite passed over the Korean Peninsula between 10.15am and 10.27am Friday, taking photos of, quote-unquote, major target areas in the South, such as Mokpo, Gunsan, Pyeongtaek, Wusan and Seoul, as well as several regions in North Korea. It also claimed that Kim saw photos taken of US military installations in Guam, Pearl Harbor and Hawaii. What do you make of these reports? Well, well, he would say that, wouldn't he, really? Um, because uh, it's um, part of the uh, bolstering up the technology of the North. However, um, I, I did see one of the reports saying it saw an aircraft carrier, um, the um, one of the U.S. aircraft carriers. And yes, uh, I mean, the satellite's focal length would in fact see a very large object like an aircraft carrier, or it will see a large base uh, in uh, South Korea, so um, or a harbour. So it will see that um, if it's working. Uh, we don't actually know whether the satellite's working. The satellite's definitely in orbit. But whether the actual optics is working and the communications uh, to uh, the ground stations is working, uh, that's not been confirmed. OK, but it has been confirmed that the satellite is at least in orbit, we're saying. It, it, yes, and, I, and, I've, and I, I've witnessed that myself. I see. OK. Uh, what about the satellite's communication capabilities, uh, especially you know, capabilities with ground control? If it is a military satellite, is communication with ground control must be also protected from interferences as well as hacking attempts. Where do you think the North's space communication capabilities stand? Well, they, they will certainly have um, spread spectrum communications, which is uh, uh, not exactly full tamper-proof, but it, it, it has some tamper-proof capabilities. So uh, it, it would communicate. But it, where, it's, where it's ground station communications is is the important thing so as the satellite gains information as it goes imaging uh, and that's imaging is turned into digital uh, signals um, where it then communicates to is not quite clear um, it would certainly be able to communicate with the north as it passes over the north and pass all its information uh, down except if it's collecting a huge amount of information all around the world and then waiting till it gets to Korea to communicate down, uh, I would suggest that it doesn't have enough time to do that. Uh, and um, it was one of the problems I had with my earlier designs. Um, so um, if you take the Chinese and Russian um, capabilities, what they have is, is a ground stations positioned all around the world. In fact, China has one in Cuba, for instance, as an example. So um, it would then communicate uh, with those ground stations as it passes over. Now, it would mean that North Korea uh, only has one, or it would then have uh, an, an alliance with either Russia or China to use its ground stations to um, pass data. So uh, I haven't worked that out at the moment. I'm still working on that. OK, how likely do you think that is, that North Korea is using... Russian and Chinese ground facilities to improve uh, the, the communication? 
the, well, that could be the case because uh, um, uh, of the Russian visit recently. Uh, that may be uh, that may have been agreed, uh, or it may have been because North Korea have a have a, a close alliance with China, and it may be that they've used Cuba and other um, uh, stations that the China have. In, in fact, China has stations in Africa as well. Right, South Korean, the South Korean National Intelligence Service says North Korea's uh, satellite launch was a success and it was due in part to Russia's assistant, assistance, something we've already hinted at. The NIS has reportedly found signs suggesting that Pyongyang provided Moscow with blueprints and other data related to its launch vehicles used in the previous two attempts, to which... Russia offered feedback. The spy agency fell short, however, of providing definitive proof of Russia's involvement, according to uh, lawmakers who are given a briefing on the matter. Do you think North Korea needed Russia's assistance? And if so, uh, what kind? What, uh, what was assistance uh, was needed for the launch to make it a success? Well, that's a very good question. Uh, and I'd like to, to distinguish between the... Uh, uh, knowledge transfer and technology transfer. Uh, technology transfer is is uh, can be reasonably quick because, you, you, for instance, a part of uh, an electronic part from Russia could have been uh, given to to North Korea. Knowledge transfer is quite different, and it then would take two to three years to pass knowledge over. So, because knowledge is a, is a thing that builds up. So um, I would suggest that uh, there's an agreement that with North Korea and Russia that has knowledge transfer, but not technology transfer. I don't think Russia, for instance, would give um, uh, North Korea some of its um, uh, optic technologies because, for instance, if they lost one of its missile, one of its uh, rockets as they did before, mm. uh, and that gets into the, the hands of South Korea or the Americans, then that would would upset Russia a lot. Mm. Whether the blueprints went to uh, Russia is uh, debatable. Uh, I think possibly that happened, but also North Korea is is quite a proud nation, and so therefore they probably wouldn't want to say, look, we're making a mistake here, can you help us? But I think they probably did quality checks on it. I see. And how important do you think those quality checks would have been to the success of uh, the launch? Well, I think that the the three or two launches that failed were due to uh, rocket failure, one in the first stage and then the second one in the second stage. Um, and I don't think uh, Russia would have been able to help with that. I think North Korea would have been learning themselves. I think where the technology transfer would have, uh, or the sorry, the knowledge transfer or quality checking would have been on the satellite itself and on the optics and communications. I think that's where um, the the major help would have come from. Okay, and then looking ahead, then when and how do you think we'll know for certain if the North satellite is uh, fully functional and how advanced it could be? Well, I think that the interesting thing is that uh, if this is a, a major success, then North Korea will um, uh, not be able to uh, resist showing some of the images. I think that I think that's that's the key point here. If if you want to tell the world, hey, we've got this technology and it's a major success, then they would show the images. 
not necessarily uh, secret images, but they would show images. From those images, we could we could tell whether they were fake or whether they were real. Um, but I think that's the situation that we'd have to wait for that. Um, but we can, of course, be able to tell through signals intelligence uh, whether the satellite is actually communicating. Right. And finally, what does the future hold then for the Maliyang one? What is the life cycle of such a satellite? Well, I've, the... The, the Malayong um, satellite is is at a height of, as I said before, at, at um, 519 kilometres. Uh, that's its at furthest point. Uh, it, it is a slightly elliptic orbit, um, and you then have to work out its decay from that particular height. Uh, and that, to me, when I do the calculations, is about eight to ten years. Um, but whether it runs out of fuel before then is is uh, another matter, uh, or whether it has trouble because of its solar panels or um, other uh, components on board. I would suggest that its maximum is is probably uh, eight to ten years, but its likely lifetime will be about five to six years. OK, well, we will see indeed whether the regime does release photos and images that it captures from the satellite. And perhaps we will have another look at the capabilities then. Uh, but for now, we'll leave it there for today. We've been speaking to Professor David Stupples from City University. Thank you once again for your time today. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index shed 0.97 points, or 0.04% on Monday, to close the day at 2,495.66. The Tekavi Kosdaq also fell, slipping 4.75 points, or 0.58%, to close at 810.25. On the foreign exchange, the local currency strengthened 2.61 against the U.S. dollar, closing the day at 1,303.81. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. It's time now for Korea Trending, our daily segments where we take a look at some other news stories that have been trending online. And for that, we have with us in the studio today, Diane Yu. Diane, hello. It's good to see you. Hello, Jango. Let's get into the first story. What do you have for us first today? Many in Korea are hearing about the tragic story of a man who was found dead and the suspicions that have been raised about how he died. According to police and fire authorities on Sunday, an emergency call was received at 10.30 a.m. last Thursday, stating that a man in his 80s had passed away and that he drank milk provided by Sky Palace. The dispatch authorities found the deceased on the second floor of a motel operated by Sky Palace in Gyeonggi Province's Yangju City. And at the time of the discovery, there was an unfinished bottle of milk next to the body. Okay, so there's so much more that we need to explain about this story for our listeners, including, for example, what Sky Palace is. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us what it is and explain about the milk as well? 
Sky Palace is registered as a religious organization, with its official name being called the Headquarter of the World Pilgrimage of Hogyongyang Sky Palace. It's run by a South Korean politician and self-professed prophet, uh, Hogyongyang. You see, in Korea, Ha is known for his antics and unrealistic campaign promises, and is considered somewhat of a flippant politician. As for the milk, followers call it eternal youth milk, or pulloyu in Korean. It's reportedly kept at room temperature and is not refrigerated, and the organization claims it does not turn sour and cures all diseases. Sky Palace, on its part, said the deceased did not drink the milk and that he was unable to eat anything due to his old age. Right, so Ha is essentially a cult leader, I think mm-hmm. we can say, and he sells this miracle, supposed miracle milk that cures all ailments. Uh-huh. But then uh, this man in his 80s was found dead next to it. So mm. that raised suspicions initially. But it also turns out... Uh, We have other information from the police right now, right? Mm -hmm. A police official explained that the man had a chronic illness and had been living in a nursing home with his wife, but moved into the motel two days before he passed away. An autopsy found that the disease was not poisoned and there were no signs of foul play. So the police don't believe a crime was committed. However, authorities will continue to investigate how the milk was bought and its ingredients. Right, so it looks like he might have died naturally. There's uh, those suspicions as well, considering that he had a chronic illness, as you said. So mm-hmm. it's uh, uh, unclear whether there was this any connection with the milk at all. Right. Uh, but there are still quite a few questions that need to be answered. Uh, it's a very curious case indeed in the mm-hmm. meantime, involving a very curious figure in Ha Gyeongyang. And yeah. we'll see what further is found out from the police investigation. Let's continue on to our second story now. What do you have for us? I'm always thankful for all the public transportation workers because they are an essential part of our daily lives and valuable assets to our society. However, it was discovered that an increasing number of those operators, especially bus drivers, are being physically abused by passengers. According to data from the Ministry of Land, Infrastructure and Transport, the National Police Agency and local governments on Sunday, the number of reports filed with the police for assaults on drivers in the past five years from 2018 to last year amounted to 16,533. In particular, the number of reported cases last year exceeded 4,300. That's nearly double 2018's total, which stood at around 2,400. That is a very concerning trend. Mm. Uh, I believe these assaults occur more often on certain types of buses in Seoul, right? Yes, on local village buses, the smaller green vehicles that run shorter routes. Mm. That's because while the bigger city buses must have driver protection barriers installed, there's no mandatory regulation for the smaller ones. In fact, 60.9% of village buses in 17 local governments nationwide have not installed such barriers. Since there is no physical barrier place to block passengers' aggressive behavior, the threat of assault is bound to increase. I see. So are the authorities doing anything to address this? Why aren't these petitions being installed on more uh, village buses? Well, the first reason would be the money. As village buses are smaller than the regular ones, barriers need to be specially ordered to fit the vehicle. Second is, as I mentioned before, the lack of regulatory measures for small village buses when it comes to installing those protective panels. There are calls saying that in order to solve the problem, the barriers must become mandatory for the village buses as well. Meanwhile, in Seoul, a city government official said that discussions regarding installing the protective panels in the future will be made with the Seoul Town Bus Association. 
I feel there needs to be more questions asked about why such attacks are occurring in the first place That's as well. very true. Why we are seeing more mm. violent incidents like this. But uh, in the meantime, there is certainly more that should be done and needs to be done to protect bus drivers yes. as well who are usually just doing their jobs. Mm. OK, let's continue on to our last story. What else has been trending today? We hear from time to time stories of people hurting themselves while trying to take selfies or photos at a tourist spot. And if things go wrong, some people end up losing their lives trying to get that perfect shot. Even with all those scary stories, similar incidents continue to take place. Last Saturday, a middle-aged man who went to one of Jeju Island's famous tourist spots fell from a cliff while trying to take a picture and was seriously injured. Okay, can you walk us through what happened exactly? At around 9.50 a.m., the man fell eight meters down from a cliff near Wedroge Rock in Sogipo City. He was conscious at the time of rescue, but his head was bleeding, and authorities suspected that he had suffered multiple fractures, so he was taken to a hospital for treatment. The Coast Guard believes that the man lost his balance and fell down the cliff while taking pictures with his companions. Similar incidents of uh, Jeju Island tourists losing their footing and falling down uh, cliffs have happened just in May as well, right. right? It's calling for the local government's intervention. Yeah, for example, since October 30th, the Sogipo Coast Guard has been controlling access to the coast around the Hawan area in Sogipo City, also known as the Blue Hole. It has become one of the hottest tourist spots among the younger generation for the beautiful color of the water. However, because the chance of falling is high and rescue is difficult due to its geomorphic characteristics, the Blue Hole was designated as a restricted area. If you enter any restricted area, you will be subject to a fine of up to 1 million won in accordance with the Act on the Prevention of Coastal Disaster. That's about 770 US dollars. So to all the tourists out there, please be safe and always remember that one picture is not worth your life. Indeed. I think people believe that it won't happen to them, but it can happen. So to right. definitely uh, be careful out there. Mm-hmm. As you said, it's not worth uh, your life. Definitely. That's we're going to wrap it up for today's Career Trending. Thank you for those stories, Diane, and we'll talk to you again next time. See you next time. It's time for our weekly sporting fix now. It's Monday Sports Roundup. And joining us on the line is sports reporter Yuji Ho from the Yanap News Agency with the latest headlines, results, previews from the world of Korean sports. Let's bring him in now. Jiho, hello. It's great to talk to you again. Yeah, it's great to be here too. Okay, so the baseball season is over, but before it all wraps up, the awards have to be handed out in the KBO, of course. And today, the awards uh, were given out and taking the top award, the most valuable player of the 2023 regular season, it was the NC Dinos ace, Eric Fetty. And he won the award in a landslide. Gio, this doesn't come as a surprise after he won the pitching triple crown in his first KBO season, right? No, not a surprise at all. Uh, Fetty earned 102 votes out of 111 cased by members of the media. So a runaway victory for Fetty, who was the league leader with 20 wins, 209 strikeouts, and a 2.00 ERA. He became just the fourth pitcher in KBO history to win the uh, pitching triple crown and the first foreign pitcher to do so. So again, this is really an easy choice uh, after Fetty also helped the NC Dinos reach the postseason 
for the first time since 2020. Uh, he's the eighth foreign player to win the uh, MVP award in KBO and the second NC Dino player to win it after Eric Thames back in 2015. And also, uh, Ferry attended, attended this award ceremony in Seoul. Uh, that's actually uh, unusual for foreign players. They usually return home after the season, uh, you know, play winter ball uh, in Dominican Republic in some cases. But Ferry went home and came back uh, for this occasion, traveled back to Korea with his father, Scott. Uh, pretty meaningful uh, occasion for the Ferry family, uh, you know, with, uh, with the father in hand, the son winning the MVP, and a whole bunch of other trophies for leading the league in uh, different, many different categories this year. Yeah, that was really great to see. I guess it shows how much this award means to him and how much his time in the KBO over the past year has meant to him as well. I'm sure it was really great for the fans to see that appreciation being shown as well. Uh, the league also announced the Rookie of the Year winner and it went to Hanwha Eagles starting pitcher Mundongju, and he's the first Eagles player to win it in 17 years, right? Right, and the last one to do it was none other than Ri Hyun Jin. Uh, back in 2006, he was the MVP the same year as well. So a uh, pretty... Uh... I guess a bit of a tough act to follow for the pitchers, players that came after Ryu, but Moon Dongju has done it. Uh, he led all rookies with 95 strikeouts this year. He was one of the hardest throwing pitchers in all of uh, KBO, earning uh, 85 out of 111 votes to win the Rookie of the Year prize. Uh, you know, back in April, uh, Moon became the first Korean pitcher ever in the KBO to hit the magical 160 kilometers per hour uh, with a pitch. So he averaged over 150 for the season. Again, one of the hardest throwing pitchers in the entire league. Uh, you know, this guy was a pretty highly touted prospect coming out of high school in Gwangju, and he was uh, Eagles' choice in their territorial draft in 2021. He actually pitched briefly in 2022 before uh, making his mark in his first full season this year. And also, he shined for the national team at the Asian Games, threw six shutout innings, and struck out seven batters in the gold medal game against Chinese Taipei as Korea prevailed 2 nothing to win their fourth consecutive Asian Games gold medal. And, uh, you know, the Eagles, they tried to protect this guy, uh, kept his innings at 120. He wasn't going to pitch more than that. He ended up with 118 and, and a third, uh, did not pitch again after September 3rd in the KBO, but, of course, pitching in the Asian Games and also the uh, Asia Professional Baseball Championship earlier this month. Now, he's turning 20 next month. Uh, I think he should be good to go for a uh, full go in 2024. Yes, an exciting prospect indeed. We'll see how he continues to progress next season. Jiho, a quick end-of-season wrap-up sure. before we move on? Uh, yeah, um, you know, we've got the Golden Glove actually coming up next month, but uh, this, you know, handing out MVP and Rookie of the Year, uh, kind of a nice way to uh, you know, wrap up, uh, I guess, the, the 2023 season in the KBO. Obviously, as the 23 in the Korean Series title, that's the biggest storyline. You know, ending their 29-year drought finally for their aggrieved fan base. But, of course, Eric Fetty, the MVP winner, uh, historic season. Uh, we don't know if he's going to come back to, uh, to KBO. He, he's drawing interest from major league clubs for obvious reasons, and this might have been his one and final season in the KBO, and he made it really a memorable one for himself. Okay, let's move on to football now, where the Korean football season is drawing to a close as well. Let's start with the second tier, K-League 2, because Kim Chon Sangmu FC earned a direct promotion to the top division K-League 1 for next season in a dramatic 
turn of events on Sunday, the last day of the regular season. So, Chiho, how did it all go down? Yeah, so it was a pretty uh, a thrilling turn of events uh, for a lot of fan bases. Now, Kincheon defeated Seoul Elan FC 1-0 to win the K-League 2 title with 71 points. And Busan Eye Park finished in second place with 70 points after a 1-0 draw with Chungbuk Cheongju FC. Now, all matches started at 2 p.m. Sunday, and Kim Chun's match ended a little early. So they won 1-0, kind of took care of their own business, and were waiting for the conclusion of the Busan Chungbuk match. And Busan were leading 1-0, and if they had held on to their lead, they, re- they would have won the K-League too and earned a promotion to the K-League 1 for next year. But they gave up the equalizer during second half at a time, about two minutes before the final whistle. So it was a pretty devastating finish for, for, uh, for Busan as they were seeking a return to the K-League 1 after last playing there back in 2020. Now, Kim Chun, they were relegated last year but bounced right back to rejoin the big boys for next year. Uh, they scored a league high, 71 goals in 36 matches in the K-League 2. Now, with Busan, uh, they're going to have to go through a promotion relegation playoff uh, against the number uh, number 10 seed uh, from the K-League 1. Uh, that's going to be their last chance to earn a promotion to the top division next year. Right, so there were tears all round, including the players and the fans mm-hmm. for Busan on Sunday. But they're going to have to quickly pick themselves up because Busan, along with three other K-League 2 teams, will have this chance to earn a promotion through playoffs, as you said. And the journey begins this week. Let's uh, talk about the first playoff match. Yeah, sure. It's going to be Gyeongnam FC versus Bucheon FC in a battle of number four and number five teams in the K-League 2. So this is one and done. Uh, Gyeongnam will be the host at 7 p.m. Wednesday. The winner of this match will go on to meet number three team, Kimpo FC, on Saturday. Now, that's also one and done. The winner of that match will later face uh, number 10 seed from the K-League 1 in a two-legged playoff series for December 6th and December 9th. The one other playoff match, uh, that's going to be between Busan and number 11 team from the K-League 1. Now, number 12 team, the last place team in the K-League 1, will be directly relegated to the K-League 2 for next year. Uh, so right now, the order of the bottom three teams, uh, they're currently occupied by Kangwon FC, Suwon FC, and Suwon Samsung Blue Wings. Uh, their, their final position will be determined on the final match day of the regular season on Saturday. So a lot of drama still left uh, to be played in the K-League 1 this coming weekend. Indeed, the drama continues in the football. Let's switch over to volleyball now in the women's V-League. Hungguk Life Pink Spiders became the first team to reach 10 wins this season over the weekend. And they did it in just their 11th match. They were the best regular season team last year, Jihua, and it seems like they could do it again this season. Yeah, they're they're looking pretty good so far this year. Of course, last season they had the best regular season record, bit of a turmoil toward the end, and they didn't end up winning in the playoffs, but uh, they're determined to make it a little different story this time. They defeated Korea Expressway in straight sets on Saturday, becoming the first team to get to the 10-win plateau, 10-1 and for the season. Yelena Mladenovic scored 10 points in the first set alone, uh, finished with a team-high 21 points. Kim Young-kyung uh, chipped in 14 points in the victory. Hong uh, Kong Life rallied from a 5-1 down really in the opening set and took it 27-25 after deuce. Uh, Kim Young-kyung dragging the team from behind when they were facing set point and 24-23. to 
And then uh, from 15 and 14 in the second set, uh, Hong Kong Life pulled ahead with a couple of big stops and then ended up taking the set 25 to 20. And the teams were tied at 15 all in the third set before Hong Kong Life picked up three quick points and finished the match on a 10-4 run. And finally, on the men's side, three-time defending champions, Korean Air Jumbos, are sitting atop the standings after a comfortable win over the weekend too. Can you tell us more? Yeah, sure. Korean Air defeated uh, Hyundai Capital in stress sets, handing Hyundai Capital their fourth consecutive loss. So Korean Air improved to 8-3. They've got 25 points. Uh, Uri Card also have 8-3 record, but they have 22 points because they've had uh, more, I guess, uh, you know, five-set wins uh, than Korean Air. Also, Ricard lost to OK Financial Group 3-0 on Sunday to miss out on a chance to regain the top spot. Uh, for Korean Air, uh, Lincoln Williams had 18 points. Three others chipped in 10 points each to lead the uh, balanced attack. Uh, Hyundai Capital had a whole bunch of unforced errors and managed only three blocks the whole match. Only Ahmed Iqbayari scored in double figures for them with 15. OK, that's all for our roundup this week. Jihua, thank you for those updates. Have a great week and we'll talk to you again next time. OK, you too. Thanks for having me. Hello, this is Anna Yates-Liu, Assistant Professor from the Department of Korean Music at Seoul National University. You are now listening to Korea 24 on KBS World Radio. We've come now to our closing segment, Morning Edition Preview, where we take a look at some interesting features or reports coming out in tomorrow's newspapers, namely the Korea Times and the Korea Herald. And for that, we have our staff editor, Richard Larkin, here with us in the studio. Richard, hello. It's great to see you. Hello. I feel like it's been a while. <laughs> it has been quite a few days, but yes, so it's uh, good to have you back. Uh, what's the first article that you have for us today? So Baby Monster, YG Entertainment's new girl group, officially made its debut on Monday. K-pop fans will probably know this, but YG has had some hugely successful groups like 21 and Big Bang and more recently Blackpink. Mm. And Baby Monster is the label's first girl group in seven years since Blackpink made its debut. I can't believe it's already been seven years. <laughs> but yeah, so I have chosen Hong Yu's article in the entertainment section of the Korea Herald, which tells us more about them. Yes, I remember we talked about this group earlier this month on Korea Trending. Mm. It released a, a pre-debut song, right. Dream, that was uh, pretty successful with over 50 million views on YouTube. Mm. Uh, it's early doors, but does it look like this debut can do even better than Dream? I think it can. The members and the label will probably be happy with the response so far. So Batter Up is the name of the digital single that was released on Monday. And it topped iTunes song charts in 14 different countries within just a few hours of its release. I also took a look at the music video of Batter Up. The view count is already over 70 million views. It hasn't even hit the 24-hour mark yet. <laughs> but yeah, I'm not really surprised. Like you said, the pre-debut song was popular. And K-pop fans were able to get to know the members early through online videos before the debut date so the label was able to build up more excitement right so you took a look at the music video and i presume I that you also got a chance to listen to the song I so did. 
How was it? Well, it's definitely a YG song. <laughs> okay. Um, I don't want to hurt... Uh, I hope I don't annoy any K-pop fans, but personally, I felt like Batter Up was too similar to songs from Blackpink. <laughs> you could probably replace the catchy chorus part with the chorus in Blackpink's do 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 track. Okay. And the rap, felt, the rap part felt like it could have been done by Lisa, so not as unique <laughs> as I thought it would be, but I'm, not, I'm probably not the target audience. Uh, the members look confident in the music video, though, and I read a comment which I kind of agreed with, and it said it felt more like a comeback than a debut song okay so they're so, pretty confident exactly okay so of course yg they have a track record for success mm. and they understand their target market sure. which as you say probably isn't us <laughs> right uh but yes uh, i'm sure they will uh, do well that's the name to look out for baby monster yes. let's continue on to our next article what do you have for us well it's a nice little article that can be found in the people section of the korea times go donghwan introduces us to oh sung sop he won the prime minister's award at the korea fruit industry competition hosted by the ministry of agriculture food and rural affairs and he has quite an interesting story Okay, before we take a look at his story, can you tell us why he was given the Prime Minister's Award? Well, he won the award for his efforts in breeding quality apples and creating opportunities for public education in farming. So O's apple farm is located 500 metres up Mount Jiri, and he has been in charge of it for 15 years. Before that, uh, it was run by his father. But he is also a banker in Seoul, so he makes the 500-kilometer round trip every weekend to run the farm. Wow. The article says that he has made the trip over 1,500 times. That's incredible. So he's been working hard to keep the farm running despite having his own regular bank job. Yes, and on top of that, students from agricultural schools and those interested in apple farming can receive lessons from O on the farm, and he visits an agricultural college in South Gyeongsang province. Yeah, it seems like his hard work has paid off. One of the prizes he received was having a section about his apples in the October edition of Korea Agrofood. So this is a magazine that is published by the Korea Agro Fisheries and Food Trade Corporation to boost exports of the country's natural produce. I mean, talk about commitment. That's yeah. incredible. Yes, uh, an incredible figure. I'd see why he won this award uh, to find out more. Uh, once again, you can check it out in tomorrow's Career Times. That's where we're going to wrap it up for Morning Edition Preview. Thank you for those stories, Richard, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. And that's where we wrap up our show. Thank you for staying with us. We'll be back same time tomorrow. So do join us again then for more news, views and reviews from Korea. Till then, we hope our listeners have a wonderful day. I've been your host, Kwon jang and thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye. KBS World Radio.